So if you find yourself feeling the heat at your next JC, wondering what you should say, or if you should say anything at all, let's get nerdy. Hey there, and welcome to Pwncast. You're tuning in to another segment of our Journal Club series. John, can you tell the audience what we're going to be doing today? So, so far we've been discussing Journal Club and critical appraisal of articles. We thought we'd give you guys some examples. We're going to use the BEAM format that we've outlined in previous episodes. And we're just going to walk through an article and show you the process of critical appraisal. So, BEAM, that's best in... E-M. It's a template from the SGEM. If you're curious, you can find it in our show notes. So today we're going to be starting with a critical care RCT because we know those best. We're going to look at the MacMan trial published in JAMA in January of 2017. This trial looked at video laryngoscopy for intubation. Over the course of the next several episodes, we're going to be releasing more critical appraisal podcast episodes from both the ICU and pulmonary topics. We're going to cover meta-analyses, non-inferiority trials, and others, but we wanted to start with one of the most impactful and most important types of research, the RCT. So what was the clinical question? Because remember, whenever we critically appraise an article, we want to ask ourselves, what is the question. John, what was the clinical question of the MacMan trial? Does the routine use of video laryngoscope for intubation in the ICU increase the frequency of successful first pass intubation compared with use of the Macintosh DL? So I guess we need to ask ourselves, is this a good clinical question? So it's a good clinical question because it focuses on a newer therapy compared to standard of care. Another easy-to-understand version of this is the NOAC or DOAC trials, which are looking at the new oral anticoagulants versus Coumadin, which is considered the standard of care. So really, they're just comparing themselves to what has been the long-standing standard of care. Yeah, and the other thing that I really like about this trial is that it's, it picks a specific primary outcome, and that's successful first-pass intubation. So moving on to PICO, remember this is our foreground question with PICO being population, intervention, comparison, and outcome. So the population of this study, who was it? It was patients in the ICU. And this is an appropriate broad patient population since a significant percentage of ICU patients require intubation. But in certain treatments, you'd want a much more narrow patient population. Let's say, for example, those with severe ARDS or advanced stage COPD. So the intervention was obviously video laryngoscopy, and the comparison of the trial was obviously direct laryngoscopy. What was the outcome? So like you said earlier, it was successful first-pass intubation. And if you've looked at any other intubation or RSI-related articles, you'll start to realize that first-pass intubation success is a very important endpoint. So the authors themselves mentioned why they picked it. And I quote, several studies show a strong correlation between the frequency of complications such as hypoxemia, cardiac arrest, and death, and the number of attempts at laryngoscopy. How did they actually confirm a successful first-pass intubation attempt? So they used quantitative entitled CO2 capnography, and basically they just used that because it's an objective data point. Awesome. So let's move on to the quality checklist. Did the study population include or focus on patients in the intensive care unit? So yes, they did. There's not a whole lot to say here, except you want to make sure you're looking at your patient population, which is broad, but ICU as compared to floor, ED, pre-hospital medicine would be a good example in intubation. 
Were the patients adequately randomized? Yes, they were. So MacMan randomized the patients in blocks of four. Good quality studies will briefly mention how the patients were randomized with more details typically available in the supplemental materials. And again, speaking to randomization, was the randomization process concealed? Yes. So studies may or may not mention if it was concealed in the main paper, but it's typically always included in the supplemental material. In the case of MacMan, they mention software automatically allocated patients guaranteeing concealment. So were the patients analyzed in the groups that they were randomized to? Yes, this is another, I feel like, extremely important thing to note. Most high-quality studies, once a patient is randomized, they must be included in their assigned group no matter what therapy they receive and if they drop out or not. MacMan did this well. They had one patient in the video laryngoscope arm that got DL, but they randomized them to the appropriate group. So tell me about how the patients were recruited. Were they recruited consecutively, i.e. without selection bias? Yes, the patients in MacMan were recruited from May to December 2015, which is a relatively short period of time for RCTs with a decent amount of patients. You'll typically see it written this way in clinical trials. It's important to note the dates. Consider what was different about ICU care during the period of time the patients were enrolled. For example, in the CSER trial, they enrolled patients from 2001 to 2006. ARDSnet was published in 2001. So you have to imagine that ventilator management changed during that time of enrollment. Even a new paper may have patients recruited from many years ago. So take notice of the date and determine if the care you think those patients received during that era closely matches your current practice, which will help you decide how applicable the trial is to your practice. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point to mention. And again, this trial was relatively short, so we can probably assume that standard of care for intubation probably didn't change over a period of seven months. So were the patients in both groups similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yes, most large RCTs will include a table with patient baseline data. Take a quick glance through this and make sure the groups are similar. Definitely. And you also want to make sure that the patient's demographics match the patient population that you're actually caring for. Things like age, uh, sex, weight, level of illness, and things like that. The other thing is a measure of actual critical illness. MacMan used SOFA, or the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score. So if, you're, if you want to look through the article and, and see which table we're talking about, is table one of the MacMan trial. Just a couple quick notes. The, median, or the mean age was 62 and the mean BMI was 26. And so when I'm looking at these, I am just always have my own patients in the back of my mind. They also had a SOFA score of 7, which I look at a lot of sepsis and ARDS patients, and typically they have SOFA scores of around 10. So this is a less sick patient population. But remember, this is dealing with all comers for intubation, so that's not unexpected. Great. So moving on to uh, our actual operators in the trial. Were the participants, like the patients, the clinicians, the people who actually assessed the outcomes, were they unaware of the group allocation, i.e. who was randomized to what group? So not in this case. Good RCTs will be double-blinded whenever possible. This means patients, clinicians, and outcome assessors are unaware of what therapy the patient's going to receive. Classic example is a placebo versus a new drug. Right, but this is a little bit difficult in the case of MacMan, right? Because the operators are the ones performing the intervention. 
So it's not really possible to blind the clinician to whether they're using a direct laryngoscope or a video laryngoscope. So Jeremy, were the patients blinded? I mean, they were sort of not awake and paralyzed, so I guess so. I guess we'll, we'll let them count that. Maybe they taped their eyes, who knows? <laughs> so another example of this is uh, the split trial looked at plasma light to normal saline. They used plain labeled one liter bags of fluid, either labeled fluid A or fluid B, and the fluids were macroscopically indistinguishable. Essentially, they didn't look different when he looked at them. Double blind. All right, moving on. Were all groups treated equally outside of the actual intervention that they received? Yes. So basically, if there's multiple differences, you cannot know which difference caused the outcome. Therefore, you cannot infer causality, only correlation. Right. But RCTs make it a little bit easier to focus only on one intervention or therapy and sort of keep everything else the same. Different types of studies like retrospective and observational have more of an issue controlling for this as they are at the mercy of the data that happened in the past. So we'll throw an example in the show notes of non-invasive ventilation after intubation to prevent re-intubation. This is a prospective before-after study. And the first group was done from 2005 to 2006. And uh, the non-invasive ventilation cohort was done from 2010 to 2012. In that case, you have to consider the chance that did something else change between 2006 and 2012 that's the true hidden reason for improvement? Or is it actually because we're starting to use non-invasive ventilation post-extubation more? So studies like RCTs are super beneficial because imagine if we could take these patients and randomize them into you know, nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation, we'd be able to control for a lot more variables. All right, let's move on to follow-up. Was follow-up complete for both groups? Yes, most RCTs also list a flow of patients figure, like the one in MacMan, which is figure number one, if you're looking at the study. You want to take a look at who was excluded, which is important to read through to make sure it fits your patients. You want to make sure they're not excluding your type of patient population. So basically, in the flow of patients, they're going to show you who was excluded. They're going to show you the final randomized. At this point, you should consider them locked into those groups like we discussed earlier. It will further detail how many actually got the therapy assigned to them. For example, above the one patient in the VL group who got DL. And that's not uncommon. There's typically a small percentage, hopefully, of patients who didn't get the original therapy for one reason or another. A couple other examples, the Proceva trial, looking at prone therapy and ARDS, A few patients in the control arm were rescue-prone. They knew this may be a problem, so they even created a rescue therapy protocol for prone positioning. And so, despite a few patients were rescue-prone in the control arm, they were still included in the control group, which is the marker of a high-quality study. CSER, again, ECMO and ARDS is another example. Patients in the ECMO arm did not necessarily receive ECMO, but were still included in the ECMO group even if they did not receive ECMO because that's where they started out being randomized. So the next thing that we want to ask ourselves, did we consider all patient important outcomes? So you want to look through the secondary outcomes and ask yourself, what measure besides the primary do I care about for my patients when considering adopting this therapy? Yeah, and you need to ask yourself, is this the right primary outcome to measure? 
Uh, mortality is a common one in intensive care trials. Sometimes in pulmonary trials, there's a discussion around, you know, should we use objective data points like FEV1? Well, does a patient really care what their FEV1 is? Maybe not. Uh, but do they care how far they could walk in six minutes and how short of breath they feel? Yeah. And so sometimes a six-minute walk test in these scenarios may be a better outcome. But of course, those have their own limitations. What were the secondary outcomes for MacMan? So he looked at a couple of things. Cormac Lehane view, bougie use, complications including mild to moderate hypoxemia and severe hypoxemia, difficult intubations, reason for intubation failure, and the use of airway maneuvers such as the Selic maneuver. So moving on to our last quality point, we want to know, was the treatment effect large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? RCTs will typically comment on why they chose the sample size they did. They typically have to base expected outcomes for each group based on previous data available for those interventions. They then have to calculate how many patients they need to see a change in outcome in the intervention group, taking into account things like type 1 and type 2 error. This is called a study's power. You want your study to be adequately powered to find the primary outcome you've chosen. It's harder to power for outcomes like mortality than it is surrogate markers, but an impact on mortality seen as a primary outcome is considered a much more impressive study than an improvement in surrogate markers. RCTs are expensive, so they're going to typically hit the right amount of patients they need to be adequately powered and then stop there. MacMan is no exception, calculating they needed at least 370 patients to be adequately powered. After exclusion, they had 371, hitting their 370 mark almost exactly. So if all of this sounds a little bit confusing... That just means that you should stay tuned to our further Journal Club episodes where we're going to go into power, type 1 and type 2 error, and things like that. At this point, we're going to move on to our key results. So the primary outcome, VL versus DL, there was no significant difference. And there was even no difference after adjusting for operator expertise. What about secondary outcomes? So grade 1 or 2 cormac lehane views were more common in the VL group. And bougie was used more often during first pass in video laryngoscopy. Most first attempts in both groups were done by non-expert intubators. And first attempts were more successful in both groups if you were an expert intubator. There was no time difference in successful intubations, two minutes versus two and a half minutes. But there was a higher percentage of severe complications in the VL group, 9.5% versus 2.8%. However, there was no significant difference in mild to moderate complications. Other important typical secondary outcome measures in the ICU were looked at, and they didn't differ. Things like ICU length of stay, duration of mechanical ventilation, SOFA scores on different days of their intensive care stay, ICU mortality, and 28-day mortality. No difference. So after these results, what did the authors conclude? So VL compared to DL did not improve intubation rates and was actually associated with higher rates of severe life-threatening complications. Yikes. So should we abandon video laryngoscopy in the ICU? VL versus DL debate rages on, huh? I guess so. So what do we think of this study? I had actually several people in the group send me this study when it first came out. I actually immediately rolled my eyes when I got these texts. I first thought, eh, this is another small, non-important VL versus DL study. Then I saw it was published in JAMA, and that made me pause for a second. 
because JAM is the number two high impact journal after New England Journal of Medicine. And this isn't small. This is a pretty good sized RCT by ICU standards. It's well powered to prove its primary outcome, which again was successful first pass intubation. And it was a pretty well designed trial as we've talked about. When I first read this study, I actually really like video laryngoscopy. And so this kind of makes me want to discredit the study. And uh, I guess that means that I need to be extra careful about my own bias when I'm looking into this paper. And I encourage you, if you're in the same camp uh, with this study or any other study with a clinically important outcome, that you do the same to be careful about your own biases. Absolutely. All of us can see other people doing this, but it's hard for us to see when we're doing it ourselves. So I want to talk about the McGrath-only video laryngoscope. I've used the McGrath. It's not my favorite. They used an indirect three or four blade, and they didn't have a hyperangulated blade. They also didn't have the stylet to help them. Um, What's your thought on them getting better views but not having better success? So that's a pretty common theme we see in VL studies in the past and a lot of VL conversation. It's pretty easy to get a good view with the VL. What we've all seen people do is get this great, beautiful view, and then they just keep trying to pass that ET tube over and over, and they just can't get it. And they just keep trying because they have this beautiful view. And it actually, if you talk to any airway experts about it, it's definitely possible to get too good of a view on a VL. In fact, you should a lot of times worsen your view to pass the endotracheal tube. So, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on the higher severe complication rates in the VL group? Uh, So I definitely don't think that it should be ignored. I would like to see more studies demonstrating this as well. But uh, my original thought is that using the video laryngoscope can make you falsely comfortable. It could make you feel like you can try multiple times where maybe with the DL you wouldn't have. I think that with the VL, you're vulnerable to try the same plan over and over without trying other things like bimanual laryngoscopy or moving the head or downgrading your view. And this is especially true in non-experts. So what I thought was interesting that I need to look into more, I think we should look into more apparently in French guidelines, if I read it correctly, for first pass, they use no stylets. And remember, no stylet at all. Did yeah. they use a bougie or it was up no. to the discretion of the intubator no that there wasn't standard use a bougie first pass okay but uh they they did use the rigid stylet if they were using the hyperangulated blade but using the mcgrath three four indirect blade they didn't interesting so if y'all have any idea why that is uh feel free to drop us a comment in the show notes previous body of literature has been growing around vl being better than dl There was two meta-analyses, one RCT, and a couple observational studies. But two previous single-center RCTs so far showed no difference between DL and VL. So before MacMan, you'd see all the time people either quoting a positive VL or a positive DL study, depending on which one was their favorite. And you see this debate frequently break out on Twitter. Definitely do. So what's our bottom line about this paper? At a minimum, I would say use what you're better at whether that be DL or VL. And there's no evidence to support VL over DL based on this trial. The higher rates of severe complications with VL is actually pretty concerning and warrants more study. So how are we going to use this information to transform our practice? So currently, right now, we're using VL more than DL. So what we're asking ourselves as a group, do we back away from teaching VL first? I don't 
think so. Well, why not? Well, VL is better for teaching. So even if you're an ardent direct laryngoscopy supporter, uh, my recommendation would be to use the video laryngoscope as a direct laryngoscope while you're attending or whoever is supervising your intubation watches over your shoulder. So once you're done with all your training airways and you're intubating by yourself, should DL be your first line? I think that we should know all of the tools available in your shop. I think that you should develop expertise and mastery of the things that are available to you. And I don't think that there's an appropriate answer to that question yet. So if we continue with VL on its current trajectory of first line for many providers in the hospital, are we basically choosing to ignore this pretty good study? Uh, I don't think so. I think that if we're going to be using VL as first line, we recognize its limitations and respect the value of the DL when we're not able to use VL appropriately. Yeah, I agree. I think the the take-home points, again, are you may get a great look, but that doesn't always mean you're going to be able to pass the tube through that and know when to give up with your initial plan and move on to your plan B, C, or D. So I hope you enjoyed this critical appraisal of an ICU RCT. We went through it a little bit more slowly so that you could follow along. And again, we went through the best in EM template from the SGEN that you can find on the show notes. If you enjoyed it, stay tuned for future critical appraisals of different types of articles and continue to listen to our Journal Club series so that we can all become better critical appraisers.